This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. There are three broad areas that we are focusing on in terms of that concept of reset. The big area relates to access issues for both urban and rural populations addressing health disparities. The second major issue are workforce issues. And finally, we're focusing on how we can and must leverage digital strategies to both enhance access, address consumer demand, manage some of the health equity issues, and redesign the way we provide care in a less facility and labor-intensive way. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durant. Our episode today is going to be focused on one of the big themes this year from SG2, and that's the idea that healthcare is at a moment where we're hitting reset, and systems are thinking big about who they want to be in the future and taking an opportunity to take a step back and pick their heads up. Everyone's been so focused on immediate problems for the last two years related to COVID-19. Previous boundaries and untouchable third rails are no longer holding us back. Everything's on the table. This is a really exciting moment to talk to some health system leaders. Kathy Perinello, Executive Vice President and COO from University of Rochester Medical Center in my hometown, Rochester, New York, was kind enough to join me today to talk about how her organization is hitting reset right now. Kathy, if you don't mind to start, can you just give us a little bit of your story, your background, and a quick overview of U of R Medicine? Thanks, Trevor. Happy to join you on this. Let me start with UR Medicine, which is an academic health system with a major teaching hospital called Strong Memorial Hospital, about 900 beds. We share a campus with the University of Rochester with an adjacent School of Medicine and School of Nursing. We're somewhat unique in this day and age in that the University of Rochester fully owns and operates the hospital, the medical school, and the nursing school. The U of R is also a private research university that has a business school, an education school, and a world-renowned music school that we're very proud of. In addition to Strong, UR Medicine operates five, soon to be six, other hospitals, a large community hospital right here in Rochester, and the other hospitals are in nearby rural and smaller communities. We also have several management agreements approved by New York State to provide management oversight over programs and operations at two other New York hospitals. UR Medicine also owns a large home care company and three nursing homes and is the majority owner of a large accountable care organization that has an IPA license. It is comprised of about 2,600 physicians as well as eight hospitals. And this is the company that we use to do all our value-based purchasing contracts. Today, they have about $2.5 billion in healthcare premium contract under risk, both upside and downside, although we do cap our downside risk, which is really important, especially in these volatile markets that we've been in lately. Fortunately, this ACO has been very successful over the past four years, earning about $60 million in gain sharing that they spread across the providers as well as the hospitals. We're really excited to have developed about six years ago that large accountable care organization. On a personal level, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in nursing from the University of Rochester and a PhD in administration also from the U of R. I have worked almost my whole career at the University of Rochester, although I did spend a couple of years working at Rush Presbyterian in Chicago in the later 1980s as a faculty member and a clinical nurse specialist. 
I served a little over 20 years as COO of Strong Memorial Hospital, University of Rochester Medical Center. In the early years of being a COO, most of my work was focused on typical day-to-day stuff. But as my tenure here has grown, it's been exciting for me to be able to expand into other leadership roles across the medical center and in the community. I serve as the board chair of a large 13-county Medicaid redesign company that was set up in our region by us and another hospital system in our community. And this was done as part of the 1115 federal waiver that New York State operated. That grant started in 2014, and we still have this company in existence today working on Medicaid redesign. And I am really excited to be able to chair that board of that company and continue to do work in the Medicaid space. Thanks for that background. That really helps frame your perspective and your experience at U of R. Give me a few of the areas or the ways in which UR Medicine is thinking about right now as a reset moment. Sure. There are three broad areas that we are focusing on in terms of that concept of reset. Basically, they were resetting from two years of fighting the pandemic, which we're certainly hoping is on the downslope. The big area that we're focusing on relates to access issues. This includes equitable access for both urban and rural populations, addressing health disparities, emerging from some of the social determinants of health and historical access barriers that our communities have faced. Also importantly, looking at how addressing access can help us with margin recovery associated with the volume reductions and the increased expenses that we've experienced due to the pandemic and some of the workforce shortages that have resulted. As it relates to growth, we are continuing to expand our footprint in many towns and communities around Rochester. For example, we now have 14 cancer centers in surrounding counties. They provide radiation oncology and infusion. They're all outpatient centers and bring patients to our main teaching hospital when inpatient care is needed. We now have 45 primary care offices, about 160 providers in those offices in surrounding counties. We have imaging centers set up in all of our communities where we have hospitals and also four large outpatient centers in our primary service area. Growing our urgent care and walk-in business has been a real important way to expand access as well, as we then capture many of those patients in our primary care network or in our specialty services. As an academic organization, we also continue to focus on how we can continue to grow our tertiary and quaternary services. This is essential to supporting our research and academic mission, because without the resources from those specialty programs, advancing research would be really difficult and innovation would be really slowed if we did not have this investment from the clinical enterprise. The second major issue are workforce issues, and I know this will resonate with everybody listening to this podcast. We're addressing labor shortages in many of our licensed professional and also support positions. To meet those needs, we're piloting all sorts of new benefit and compensation programs. We're assessing staffing ratios that we really don't want to alter given the intensity of the care our patients' needs and also looking at redesigning healthcare delivery systems where possible with new position types to support the licensed professionals. And finally, and closely related to both health issues above, we're focusing on how we can and must leverage digital strategies to enhance access, address consumer demand, manage some of the health equity issues, and redesign the way we provide care in a less facility and labor intensive way. Those are three great ones. I want to go a little deeper into each of them, if you don't mind. And I'm glad you put health equity first. I'm going to go back to that. 
What's been your approach or maybe a guiding principle around your health equity work? The objectives can seem bigger even than our very ambitious missions in healthcare. How's UVAR thinking about this opportunity to improve health equity in your community? The pandemic provided firsthand, in-your-face experience as to the importance of social determinants of health and the impact they have on the well-being of patients, persons, and communities. This experience for us highlights the importance of the healthcare industry establishing partnerships with community-based organizations who already focus on important social aspects such as poverty and its relationship to safe housing, food insecurity, transportation, educational attainment, and the like. This experience has energized us to think more broadly about these factors and really work on developing relationships with outside organizations that can help us addressing these issues. For example, we've initiated several things along these lines. First of all, we've established an Office of Health Equity and Program Support, which was an outgrowth of our DISRIP work, which was part of that 1115 waiver. Even though that grant has ended, we have continued this group of professionals that work closely with our organization and the community in addressing health disparities. We've also reorganized and modernized the way we obtain demographic data from patients so that our records are accurate as to race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and the like. And we've done that so that we can better analyze our outcomes to be sure that there are not disparities in the outcomes across these demographic groups. For example, our primary care group, as they have quality measures that they look at and measure for these value-based contracts, Generally, they have looked at those measures in the aggregate. They're now beginning to disaggregate those data and look at what those outcomes look like by race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. So it gives us the opportunity to really better understand where we have disparities and what we can do about them. The other thing we've done, which I'm real excited about, is we've implemented a new module in our electronic health record to collect information on social determinants of health. We focused on three areas where we want to collect data to better understand challenges that our patients have, transportation challenges, lack of safe housing, and food insecurity. We started with those three because we think they've had the biggest impact on our patients to actually access services. We've also created a link in our medical record so that we can do electronic referrals to these community-based organizations. Really fascinating that we had a very robust 211 network in our community, which was electronic. But health providers access that outside of the medical record, which means providers very often didn't have the time to step out of the medical record and access this other record. We have actually created a link so that when a social determinant is identified, a patient can be referred to that organization for services. We did that primarily driven by our clinicians who said, we don't want to just capture information about what our patients' challenges are. We want to be able to do something about it. Well, as a hospital system, we can't always do something about it alone, but there are organizations in our community that can, and so we can refer them to those organizations. A final initiative that I'm really excited about is we are working with our community partners in the establishment of a health center in the middle of our center city of Rochester, not far away from the public transportation center and a lot of communities with vulnerable populations. 
in planning to set this up and acquire the space and begin the program planning, we surveyed many of the providers and CBOs in the center city to see how we could be of most value to them as it related to reducing health disparities. They identified a bunch of services that we already knew about, expanding primary care for both adults and children. They talked about the importance of urgent care with walk-in visits, which we had anticipated providing women's health programs and the like. But they also suggested some things that we hadn't thought about. Physical therapy and occupational services were identified because there's a dearth of those services available in the city. Pharmacy services and also phys med and rehab services because many individuals living in the city suffer from back and other medical musculoskeletal issues. Really important for them to have access to those kinds of services. Kathy, since you're starting it with the intention of serving vulnerable populations, how does the mix of providers or the service or the wraparound pieces or the physical space, how is any of that planning different because of the population you're hoping to serve? And we haven't built the space yet. We're in negotiations now for a large facility that's right downtown that's empty. We've identified the location. What has been so different in this process is typically as our medical center has gone out and developed community-based sites, we've done all the planning with our providers, with our board, with our facilities folks and and real estate folks in terms of where we're going to position ourselves. In this initiative, we have spent a lot of time talking to community-based organizations to find out, first of all, where do you think this should be? They helped us land on the spot we've identified. What are the services you think we should provide? It's been an iterative process with community-based organizations and other providers, unlike our historical approach to growing clinical service sites where we basically hire consultants, look at the marketplace, and identify where the best payer mix is to provide service. This has been a unique experience in that regard. That's fun. That's exciting. Next, I want to go a little deeper into virtual care, which you mentioned. And your perspective has been a little more positive than many I've heard from across the country who had obviously a big tick up, but then in many cases, an equally sharp decline as providers encourage their patients to return to normal. Tell me about your experience and why you're hopeful that your digital transformation can continue. You're absolutely right. The pandemic really stimulated our adoption of digital health because the technology was there long before the pandemic, but most of our providers were very resistant to using the technology. In fact, we have grids where I think less than 1% of our thousands of daily outpatient visits were done via telemedicine. With the pandemic, we went over 50%, just as you mentioned. All of a sudden, over half of our outpatient visits were being done virtually. And as that dropped off, the pandemic, we opened up clinics and were able to see people in person. We still have about 15% of those visits that are done virtually, and we're continuing to grow that. What we did learn in studying this and our analysts that really wanted to delve into no-show rates, whether the appointment's virtual or in person, did some really nice work. What we learned is the biggest drop in no-show rates was amongst the Medicaid population. We were surprised at that because initially we worried about the digital divide and access to high-speed broadband. But what we also understood is that very often individuals, particularly those that are poor and are insured through our New York State Medicaid program, they have many other challenges relating to transportation, relating to childcare so that they can get away to make a medical appointment. So it was really helpful for us to learn about that. And that stimulated many of our providers to want to continue to do these virtual visits. 
the uptake has been especially good in our behavioral health providers and in primary care and in some of our pediatric, both primary care and specialists. We're trying to exploit all of these digital strategies, everything from these telemedicine or virtual visits to in-home monitoring for chronic illnesses. We're also doing e-visits or those electronic visits that can be done online through the medical record. We're rolling out online scheduling and the like. In addition, our urgent care and primary care practices are just now launching a visit-on-demand program using our nurse practitioners and PAs initially to be able to on-demand, which patients can request through my chart, this urgent visit, and then fairly quickly, within an hour, be able to have that online visit. We're real excited about that because we actually piloted that in urgent care during the pandemic, where even though our urgent care center stayed open, people were often afraid to go to urgent care. We implemented this digital way that people could reach out to the urgent care center and get some immediate attention, which sometimes could be fully addressed via telemedicine versus having to have the person come in. And given the success of that, as well as consumer demand, we are pursuing that as well. It's a new era as it relates to consumerism, and we need to think about changing and thinking about our patients as consumers and trying to keep up with other sectors of the industry, particularly drugstores, for example, other payers that are really trying to get into this digital world. And if we don't get into that world as well and start making ourselves available to our community members, we're going to lose that business to these other disruptors. That's well said. And maybe we've saved the biggest and maybe hardest one for last year around workforce. You can't help but think of right now as a workforce reset moment, whether it feels forced or because you're looking at it as an opportunity to really rethink and redesign everything about your workforce and how you get the work done. How is UR Medicine thinking about changing recruitment, retention, and redesigning your workforce? That's taking up a lot of our time these days all over the country. Despite the current workforce shortages, there continues to be great interest in healthcare and careers. We hear that and we see that, particularly in medicine, nursing, social work, the therapies. Our health profession schools continue to be very active and have full classes. The interest in healthcare careers is still there. The workforce shortage has really resulted around early retirements, people that might have worked longer, but then decided due to the stresses of the pandemic, retirement was a good thing to do. Although it's interesting, and we're seeing a little bit of this in our organization, and I'm hearing about it nationally in other occupations. Yeah, people retired, and then now as the pandemic wanes, they're saying they may not come back full-time, but they come back, what we call time is reported, and are working on a part-time basis with us. And we're excited to create opportunities for people to do that. They had to watch the grandkids a little too much, I think. Exactly right. And they realize that work's not so bad. One of the other things we're really focusing on is diversity in workforce. And as our communities become more diverse, as the country becomes more diverse, it is really important for our workforce to become more diverse as well for several reasons. Certainly, we want to enhance the cultural competence of our staff as it relates to the persons we serve. But secondly, we want to support expanding our workforce. Given the labor-intensive nature of healthcare, we really need to expand the population that is trained to work in healthcare. 
To that end, we've developed pipeline programs for career development, which I think are essential in this effort if we're going to be successful. We're partnering with local high schools, offering after-school employment, and we've just got a grant to support some job coaches. And this is based on a pilot we did, which was very successful. We work with the high schools, identify students that need a job, and we bring them in part-time. They have job coaches so that the hiring manager doesn't have to worry about attendance or work ethic or training these young or middle teens how to work and how to adapt to the workplace. And what we found is that many of these students, once they graduate, and if they don't go right to college, they want to work with us in these jobs because they've become used to them. They've become interested in healthcare careers. We also, through tuition support programs, work with these individuals to try to go on to community college or pursue other types of education so that they can advance their careers in our organization. It's been exciting for many of our employees to really feel good about helping youngsters really understand healthcare careers better. And it's exciting watching young people become interested in healthcare and then watching them pursue formal training so that they can continue careers in healthcare. We're also implementing many compensation adjustments for professionals and support staff. We've designed a travel at home experience, and this is where we're trying to compete with these travel companies. What we do is have reduced some of our benefits. We certainly provide the statutory benefits, but enhance the hourly rate, which is what some of the travel companies have been doing. And that way, people that are interested more in that hourly rate will stay with us in what we call travel at home, meaning they'll take assignments in a number of different areas for a set number of weeks, but not leave the organization. They don't give up their longevity in the organization. And at the end of that period, if they want to come back and work as regular staff, their benefits then get reinstated and they're all set. So that's been a really important strategy. We've also developed programs, what we call enhanced pay for staff working extra hours. We have these 13-week contracts where staff can pick up an extra shift a week and then get a bonus at the end. And those have been really attractive. Although what we found is individuals can do those usually for so long and then the fatigue kicks in and they have to go back to more regular hours. One of the things we've noticed which makes this all the more important in terms of identifying ways to attract licensed professionals and support workers. And I think this is true in many areas of healthcare where our medical staff numbers have continued to be strong. We've been very successful in recruiting members to our faculty, to the medical staff. The pandemic has really affected low and middle income workers more than it's affected the high income workers. We have these medical staff that are raring to go, but are constrained by the lack of other licensed staff that they need to get the work done. It's been really important for us to focus on workforce, look for different compensation programs, look at the travel at home program, and really rethink the way we design patient care and the way it's delivered. We want to be real careful on that because staff ratios are really, really important for nursing satisfaction. We want to avoid focusing on professional nursing staffing levels on our very busy inpatient units, but also look at what types of new roles can we develop that really support the clinical staff so that they can expand the number of patients that they're able to care for. 
that's well said. And thanks for sharing so many quick stories. When you put that all together in totality, it really does seem like a reset moment with some pretty big fundamental changes. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective. Look forward to talking to you again soon here on SG2 Perspectives. Great. Thanks, Trevor. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.